I have shared with you before that the late sociologist Carl Zimmerman, who uh, wrote the book Family and Civilization back in 1947, recorded his observations as he compared the disintegration of cultures, uh, various cultures, with the parallel uh, parallel decline of family life in those cultures. He identified eight specific patterns of behavior, uh, of domestic behavior, that typified a downward spiral. Five of those eight are the following. Marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. Traditional meaning of marriage, the, the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Refusal, there's the refusal of people within traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. There's a growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. And there's an increasing interest in and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. Unfortunately, that sounds all too familiar, does it not? And that's because the number of people who were exercising their corrupt moral ability to choose to reject their creator and worship themselves or the creation, and who not only ignore, but repudiate and actually attempt to eradicate humanity's God-given image of male and female, the institution of, institution of marriage and the mandate to be fruitful and multiply are growing daily. The sins uh, some are embracing, of course, in the process are more heinous than others. Many are reprehensible, in fact. But in the end, they are all damnable offenses that are equivalent to cosmic treason against a holy God. A holy God that created them. And as a result, that downward spiral actually seems to be picking up speed. The world's value system, of course, calls evil good and good evil. And there are those who are willing to accept irrational and illogical arguments to justify it, but regardless of what the world and our culture endorses, what God says remains true, and it is the standard by which mankind will be judged. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, woe to those who believe otherwise. Tonight we're going to see what God says is good and right regarding men and women, marriage, and childbearing. And as you can imagine, it runs directly counter to what the culture says or what the world says. And we're going to see five ways in which God has blessed mankind at creation. And these blessings were not just for Adam, not just for Eve, but therefore, anyone and everyone who will receive them and follow them today. 
And I say it that way because his blessings are also obligations. I want us to see the blessings of companionship, the blessing of complementarity, the blessing of marriage, the blessing of multiplication, and the blessing of being unashamed. And before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these moments, please give us humble and contrite spirits and keep us from all worldly wisdom. I ask that you would grant me grace and that you would fill me with your spirit and that you would use me as you see fit. And I pray these things in the name of and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. All right, well, let's look first at the blessing of companionship. If you were here last week or you weren't here and listened online, you will remember that I said chapter 2 is not a chronological recap of the first five days of creation that we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a picture of creation taken with a wide-angle lens. And chapter 2 is a picture of creation taken with a telephoto lens, uh, particularly the picture of the creation of man isolated from creation as a whole. And in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 1, Moses said that on the sixth day, you'll remember that God made the livestock and the beasts of the field or the earth and everything that creeps on the ground. And he made all of those things according to their kinds. And after he saw that it was good, he then, in the words of Calvin, consulted with or within himself regarding the creation of man, Because all eternal wisdom and power resided within himself. And by so doing, he communicated that man was a preeminent specimen. Then in verse 27, we get a wide, again, a wide angle picture of the immediate creation of man, both male and female. But the telephoto lens that we see in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 2 breaks it up a bit. After creating Adam, God gave him the first opportunity to fulfill his kingly role by exhibiting the authority and the responsibility God had given him as his earthly representative to subdue and exercise dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he did that, and he took that opportunity, or the opportunity was, the naming of every one of those creatures. But during the, during the naming, Adam realized something. As each animal came by, possibly in twos, Adam came to the conclusion that while all of the animals had a companion, he didn't. While all of the animals had another animal according to its kind, Adam didn't. Yes, Adam was created according to God's kind, as we said, but he realized that there was no one after his kind, his own kind. In other words, he was alone. He had no one like him to fellowship with. He had no one like him uh, to, to be familiar with. He had no one like him to be close to. He had no one 
like him to belong to or to be affectionate toward. He had no one to be intimate with, either physically or emotionally. And in verse 18, God said that it wasn't good. If you'll remember, God had said everything up to that point uh, was good. It all appropriately reflected his goodness. But there was something about Adam's aloneness that didn't reflect his goodness. Adam had, up to that point, had been given everything that he needed to succeed except for one thing, and that was a companion. And it was then that God met his need and created a woman. A woman who, in the words of Ligon Duncan, was the crowning blessing of God's goodness to man in creation. Let me read that again. The woman is the crowning blessing of God's goodness to man in creation. And that leads us to the second blessing, which is complementarity. You see, in verses 18 and 20, the woman who Adam would later call Eve is described as a helper fit for him. Now, depending on the translation you have in front of you, it may say it was a helper suitable for him. It could read a, suitable, a helper who corresponds to him or is comparable to him or who is just right for him or is his complement. And we need to understand what, uh, properly understand what that means. Because you see, helper or being a helper is not in any way demeaning. And that's because Eve is described in the same way that God sometimes describes himself. As a help. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, ladies, uh, are you there yet? In 18? Okay. You'll remember in chapter 18 of Exodus that Moses names one of his sons Eliezer. And he named him Eliezer because he says the God of his father was his help. In John chapters 14 and 16, you'll remember, I'm sure, that Jesus called the Holy Spirit, who he said he and the Father would send to his disciples, the helper. So God had created Adam in such a way that he needed someone to assist him to carry out the responsibilities that he had been given. He needed someone to provide what he was lacking and to help him do what he couldn't do on his own. Yes, their natures were the same. She received what Adam received at creation. They both reflected God's image. They both had value and worth, and their value and worth was based on the fact that they shared in God's image. And yet there were also differences. She was um, or would be his opposite or his counterpart. She would correspond to him perfectly in every way. They would literally fit together physically and biologically. She would provide balance emotionally. She would, she would supply different and sometimes opposite perspectives and opinions. Their abilities and, and capabilities in some cases would be similar, but in other cases they would be different. But their responsibility would be shared. 
but carried out through their different roles. Within the relationship. And the way they carry those out through those different roles would lead to a harmonious complement to one another. They would harmoniously complement one another. What Adam lacked, Eve would supply. Where Adam was weak, Eve would be strong and vice versa. There's a quote uh, from Matthew Henry that uh, practically every commentator uh, mentions or uses. In referring to how God created Eve from the rib of Adam, he superbly captures what went on when he said, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Though we aren't told, I tend to believe that Adam was informed of what was going on while he was asleep in a dream, and I say that um, because when he woke up from his divine surgery, he knew immediately what had happened. He knew the Lord had met his need. He knew by looking, just by looking at her, that Yahweh Elohim had provided a perfect match. And he, of course, cried out, At last! At last! My love has come along. My lonely days are over. He didn't quite say that. That was Etta James. He said, At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, she's my kind. She's my companion. Gentlemen, for those of us who are married, if I might be so bold to say, I hope we all look at our wives that way. They are the crowning blessing of us in creation. They are the crowning blessing of God's goodness expressed to us. They were not created for us to trample over, but to protect and to love and to protect and to care for. They are our counterparts. They correspond perfectly to us in every way. We cannot do what we've been created or called to do without them. What we lack, our, lives, our wives supply. Where we are weak, they are strong. And vice versa. They are our divinely offered help. Well, the third blessing is the blessing of marriage. Moses, having shared what Adam has said, then comes along and makes a very important connection. Right? He provides commentary and he says that companionship, this companionship and this complementarity are actually the basis for and at the heart of marriage. He says in verse 24, Therefore, 
Right? Because of the companionship, because of the comp- uh, complementarity, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, companionship and complementarity are foundational because they are the motive and the purpose of marriage. They're not the only motive and purpose, and we're going to see that in a minute, but they are the motive and purpose. They are the primary motive and purpose, but they're also not just, the motive, not just a motive and purpose. They are also necessary for the success of marriage. Companionship and and complementarity are necessary for the success of marriage. In other words, they're not only the ends, but they're the means to the ends. It's both and. It's in marriage that companionship and complementarity are put on full display and flourish better than any other relationship that human beings experience. And that's because marriage is the only relationship that is designed by God to be an exclusive, lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. So increasing the number of either, which is polygamy, or excluding one sex or the other, which in our times would be described as gay marriage, and limiting the time commitment together via divorce are all outside of God's design for marriage. The man and the woman were to leave. They were to sever their physical and emotional ties with their father and mother, which, by the way, is another reference to male and female. But they were to leave their father and mother who had raised them and who knew them better than anyone in order to devote themselves to to devote themselves to, to transfer their loyalties to, to, and unite themselves wholly to one another. Marriage is the only relationship in which they promise by God's grace to love and cherish each other above all others. Marriage is the only relationship in which the two people promise, the the male and the female, the man and the woman, promise to be noble and virtuous across their lifetimes together, across their experience of life together, regardless of what's required of them. Whether those times are joyful, whether they're sad, whether they're times of prosperity or adversity. The man and the woman in marriage promise to be in every sense true and faithful, holding to each other alone every day of their lives across the experience, again, of their lives. The entirety of their lives. It's the only relationship where there's a promise to love and care for and listen to and learn from and be one with each other. They promise, to summarize and paraphrase Paul from Ephesians 5, they're promising to commit themselves to a mutual, self-sacrificing relationship in which the husband loves the wife with a selfless and serving love and the wife 
promises to voluntarily yield to the God-given leadership or authority or position of the husband. And it's the only relationship, again, where those vows are made in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's no other relationship like it. And when they're united in marriage, what God separated at creation, He reunites spiritually into one flesh. But as I mentioned, there is another purpose for marriage, and that's the fourth blessing. And it's the blessing of multiplication. Now you're right, it's not mentioned here in the passage. It's mentioned back in verse 28 of chapter 1. And yet it is a blessing of, it is a blessing of creation. It's a blessing and an obligation. It's a blessing and obligation to be fulfilled. That, in the words of Gordon Wenham, carries with it the implicit promise that God will enable man to fulfill it. God could have created, of course, more than one man and more than one woman, but He didn't. He chose one man and one woman, created one of each, and bestowed on them the blessing and the honor of filling the earth, filling the earth themselves by divinely enabling them to create living souls. He wanted to produce children, but He didn't just want to produce children. He wanted to produce Godly children. Listen to these words of God spoken through the prophet Malachi. As he rebukes Israel's faithlessness that was being exhibited by them through how they treated marriage and divorce. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And here's the answer. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. In other words, God's blessing of multiplication, which, by the way, is bound to the blessings of complementarity in marriage. Because you can't have children unless you have a male and a female. And you shouldn't have children outside of the context of marriage. So the blessing of multiplication is tied to those things. But that blessing of multiplication was to be and continues to be the ordained method of church growth. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 127 tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. And our quivers that come in various sizes, right? Some are larger than others, but all of our quivers are to be full. 
And at the same time, we need to acknowledge that our ability to fill them is only possible, only possible as the Lord enables us to be fruitful by His power and by the wisdom and His providential wisdom, care, and work. And of course, sadly, there are those who desire more than you can imagine to have children, but who are unable to by no fault of their own. But in the words of Chad Van Dixon, there needs to be an extraordinary reason for couples to refuse to have them. Because they're a blessing. And children, please, eyes up here for just a second. I want you to see me and hear me say this. You are a blessing from the Lord. You're a blessing to your parents. You're a blessing to this church. And God's promises are for you just as much as they are for your parents. And I don't ever want you to forget that. We thank and praise God for you. Every single one of you, even though you outnumber us. We love you. Well, the last blessing is the blessing of being unashamed. And it's found in verse 25. And it says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And of course, their nakedness was literal. But it, it represented so much more. Their relationship with God and with one another was unobstructed. They had nothing to be embarrassed by. They had nothing for which to hide from or from which to hide from. Nothing weighed them down. They had no burdens to carry at all. They had no constraints and they had no restrictions and they had no hindrances and frustrations and divisions. They had no separation. They had no fear. They had no anger. They had no worry. There was no manipulation, there was no oppression, there was no exploitation, there was no abuse, there was no rejection, there was no greed, there was no lust, there was no dishonesty, there was no selfishness, there was no competition, there was no mistrust. There were no ideations of superiority superiority or inferiority. There was only confidence and assurance. There was only ease and contentment. They were free. And they were experiencing the unencumbered communion with God and with one another. But all of that was about to change. In a moment, Satan, because he had been lurking and was lurking in the shadows and had formulated a plan, in a moment would bring everything crashing to the ground around them. We're going to see next week in chapter 3 that he will prey on the unsuspecting and unprotected and seduce and manipulate both Adam and Eve through questions and lies and false promises into life-altering choices that that are going to leave a path of devastation and destruction in their way. Evil and sin 
will enter in and not just disrupt, but destroy the harmony and sincerity and serenity and rest. Nothing is going to be left unaffected. The corruption will be comprehensive. Paradise is going to be lost. And we are still, of course, experiencing and suffering the effects today. Loneliness and isolation are rampant. They're at an all-time high. Our cancel culture heaps shame and guilt and condemnation on others like it's a national pastime. What was originally absent is now in abundance. Constraints, restrictions, hindrances, frustrations, division, separation, fear, anger, Anxiety, worry, manipulations, oppression, exploitation, abuse, rejection, greed, lust, dishonesty, selfishness, competition, mistrust, ideations of superiority, inferiority. There's no confidence, no assurance, no ease, no contentment, rampant bondage, enmity, alienation, estrangement, and hostility are the rule of the day. And every day, every day, we are faced with Satan's all-out, full-frontal assaults on and mockery of the creative order through sexism and misogynism and transgenderism and everything else involved in the LGBTQ plus movement. Satan has... Listen... Satan has moved on from murdering children in the womb. He is now mutilating those who make it out of the womb in the guise of helping them find their true selves and identities. He's also destroying homes. And he's destroying homes by destroying marriages. And the church is not immune. Beloved, the number of professing Christians who enter sanctuaries on Sunday, who are lying to, cheating on, and abandoning their current spouses and children, who are failing to humbly lead through selfless, and sacrificial service and love as a husband or who are failing to humbly submit and honor and help as a wife, who are seeking companionship from others other than their husband or wife, those who are ignoring, distorting, and eliminating the God-established complementarity within the relationship, those who are usurping control that is harmful and demeaning, those who are refusing to acknowledge and to repent of sins that include but aren't limited to manipulation, oppression, abuse, rejection, greed, lust, dishonesty, and selfishness, those who are supporting alternative forms of marriage in the name of inclusivity, those who are cohabitating and living outside, together outside of marriage, those who are advocating for and taking advantage of no-fault divorce, the numbers would astonish you. And all the while in so doing, they're, they're living contradictory lives and they're bringing a, re- a reproach upon themselves the Lord Jesus, 
the church, and the gospel. But in the midst of that, there is hope. I'm going to say that again because we're all feeling it. In the midst of it, there is hope. And that hope is Christ has come. Christ has come. Christ came to find the lost. He came to restore what was destroyed. He came to reconcile what was severed and estranged. He came to redeem and to set free those who are in bondage to their sin and who are imprisoned and awaiting their sentence of their sin, which is death. He came to save sinners. He came to save sinners from every tribe, nation, and tongue, young and old, rich or poor. He came to save anyone and everyone who had repented of their sin and turned to Christ in faith. He came to take on our shame. He came to take on our guilt. He came to be condemned on our behalf so we would not have to face condemnation. And He did so as our substitutionary sacrifice. He came to pay the eternal debt that we owed for our sins that we were imputed with and that we inherited and that we actually commit. And He did it through His death on the cross. And the salvation, that salvation is offered to us by God's grace and it's received by us through faith alone. But the good news gets better, if that can be better than that, right? And it's because God has, or Christ has not only come, He's coming again. And He's making all things new. The way things are now, the way, the way things are now are not always the way things are going to be. We're anticipating a new heavens and a new earth. We're looking forward to the day in the words of Isaiah when we don't remember the former things. Will that not be wonderful? All of this will be forgotten. We're looking forward to the day when like Adam and Eve before the fall... Our relationship with God and one another will be unhindered. There will be no more sin. There will be no more evil. Once again, there will be nothing but confidence and assurance. Once again, there will be ease and contentment. We will be free. And we will experience unencumbered communion with God and one another. We will be at rest. And thanks be to God. That it will be better than Eden. Because our rest will be full and final. Because not only will there not be sin and evil, but there won't be the possibility of sin and evil or another fall. This is why Matthew, or why Matthew 22.30, or in Matthew 22.30, Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
You see, not only will we not need to be fruitful and multiply and therefore procreate in heaven, we won't need marriage to provide the companionship and the complementarity we need because we will all, we will all experience perfect companionship, perfect love, and perfect communion with one another and all the saints. On the day when Christ returns, the consummation of the only marriage in heaven will be between Christ, who is the bridegroom, and the church, who is the bride. And as we read, as we were preparing for worship, we will be at that supper. We will be there. Now let me conclude with this. With a few things. First, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And as new creations, we are able, because of, because of the power that lives within us by the Spirit, because of the power that the gospel gives to us, we are able to strive toward living obediently. We are to, um, to live obediently as God intended, to, to live as He created us to be, to live a life worthy or in a manner to which we have been called, all the while resting in His work when we fail. Right? Life is about striving and resting. So that's first. Second, our marriages were never intended... To provide us a spouse who would meet our every need. Our marriages and our spouses were never intended to be our ultimate source of fulfillment. Our marriages and our spouses were, were never intended to give us our ultimate identity. All of those things are only found in Christ. Our marriages were, were designed to point us and our spouses and our children and our neighbors to Him. So when we take those two things together, with those two things in mind, I want to ask a few questions. Is there a sin driving a wedge between, for those who are married, is there a sin driving a wedge between you and your spouse? If so, repent and look to Christ. Is there a lack of love that's festering under the surface of your marriage? Repent. Repent and look to Christ. Are there sinful desires and temptations that are hovering over your marriage? Repent. And look to Christ. Did you arrive tonight ready to throw in the towel because today it just today it just doesn't seem to be worth the effort to stick it out? Repent and turn to Christ. For those of you that have 
that have already made choices that are contrary to God's design and His blessing for you, the answer is the same. Okay? If you have experienced a divorce that wasn't, or that was for anything other than a biblical reason of adultery or abandonment by a non-believing spouse, again, the answer is the same. Repent and look to Christ and love faithfully from this point forward. If you've remarried after not having a biblical reason for divorce, again, repent and look to Christ and love and live faithfully from this day forward. And I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't say this as well, having mentioned it. If you are struggling with same-sex temptation or gender confusion, or if you're actively pursuing a lifestyle that is contrary to who you have been created as male and female in the image of God, or if you're pursuing a relationship contrary to God's design, look to Christ. Repent of your sin. He will forgive you. You've heard me say this many times. There is no sin so small that is not in the need of the Father's forgiveness and Christ's atoning work. But there is also no sin so great that the Father's forgiveness and Christ's atoning work can't cover it. Whatever that may be. And finally, just a few more. If you're single... And you desire to be married. Look to Christ. He loves you. He will comfort you. Pray. And your prayers will be heard. And for those of you who are hurting. If you've been left weeping. Due to infertility. Or miscarriage. Or loss of a child. Look to Christ. He loves you, He will comfort you, and He will restore you. And if you've been left weeping, deserted and alone, sinned against, mistreated, manipulated, oppressed, or abused within a marriage or within your home, again, look to Christ. He loves you. He will comfort you, and He will restore you. And if anyone needs immediate help or needs to talk, grab an elder before you leave tonight or call the office this week. Let us minister to you. Let's pray.